Hello and welcome. My name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 32 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Today's guest, the English trainer Elaine Butler, formed her own training academy five years ago called Rider Ability. And she's been teaching for more than 20 years in England, France, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Spain, Poland and Norway. What I really like about her is her capacity to work with riders and horses of any age or experience level, because she works on the basics needed for all good riding, balance, flexibility and precision. And her focus on biomechanics is not only an eye-opener for many riders, it is also a blessing for many horses. So, Elaine, here we are to have a um, conversation about your horsework. Very nice. Very happy to be here. I'm really glad that it's um, it's been quite a while since your name popped up uh, the first time for me. Uh, you are not very easy to Google, but uh, I have listeners who keep track of you, and they have helped me to to find this moment where it's possible to have this talk. Super. And uh, I always like to start with the beginning. The beginning of your journey with horses. Um, where would uh, what would be a, an appropriate place to start for you? Um, I'm not sure when the pony mad thing started, but my mother says that my great grandfather was a farrier, so maybe she thinks it was just genetically handed down to me because nobody else in the family was into horses at all. In fact, my my mother is very scared of them. Um, I must have caught the bug probably um, having donkey rides on Bournemouth Beach where I grew up in the south coast of England and I always, always, always dreamed of having my own pony for Christmas and it never arrived and I think the bug just didn't leave me. So when I finally um, gathered enough money together uh, later and I was a late starter, I didn't start riding riding till I was 28, um, I totally was convinced this is this is going to happen and after a couple of years of riding in Germany in quite a good riding school I would say I mean they were doing their best to to train us well um, my instructor suggested a horse for me and we bought him more or less unseen because my instructor had known him when he was younger unfortunately he had been messed up he'd been a bit traumatized um, by another trainer and so I got this rather crazy horse and things went terribly wrong for the first couple of years I could not ride that horse I kept falling off I kept having accidents we were miscommunicating all the time and I was bitterly disappointed because up until that point I'd been riding other horses I thought rather well but this horse showed me how little I knew and um, and then I kind of got a bit lost because my instructor couldn't help me. He couldn't explain what I was doing to upset my horse. And when other people rode the horse, they didn't have half as many problems as me. And so I went searching for answers um, at a time where there was no internet. <laughs> so basically a bookshop and ended up with a book by Mary Wanless, which really, really helped. I'd also read the book Centered Riding by Sally Swift. And I kind of got into the thing that it must be my body that's upsetting his body. Um, and a lot of what I learned then really helped to turn the relationship around. And then I trained with that lady. Um, and, 
decided that I could probably help a lot of people with similar problems. Um, and I come to a point in my general career where I was losing interest in what I was doing and getting very stressed. It was a very high pressure career that I had. And so I decided I would quit that career and train to become a rider biomechanics coach. And now I've been doing it for 23 years. And I've actually been coming to Norway for about 16 years, thanks to a happy coincidence through a friend that I met in England. And, uh, yeah, and I travel a lot. I do um, clinics overseas around Europe for six months a year. And when I'm back home in Germany, I have a small farm and I do local training there. And I've also started to train other people who want to learn to improve their teaching skills and find more creative solutions than just heels down, sit straight, head up, hands, you know, that kind of thing. So I had the pleasure of uh, watching you teach today. Um, and uh, 80% of your focus uh, seems to be on the rider, 20% maybe on the horse. Unless there's a problem going on in the horse that we really need to fix right now. But um, I try to have the philosophy that we can improve the movement of the horse, the relaxation of the horse and the general harmony by working on the rider's body and the rider's mind. Um, rather than just trying to fix the horse by sending it around, making pretty patterns on the sand, you know, wearing it out uh, <laughs> um, so that it cooperates. I'd rather try and find a way, a more gentle way, a more horse-friendly way. And so we work a lot with body control, body awareness, and a lot of focus on how the rider can not upset the horse. Yeah, so when you get on the horse, you cannot not have an influence. You are always somehow either a positive influence or a negative influence. And inexperienced riders start in the negative zone. And it takes you quite a few years to get to zero where you're okay. You're, you know, your horse is fairly happy with you on board. But then it takes a lot more skill to become a rider that can actually change the horse for the positive yes to build um, good muscles to build strength in the horse to have a horse that is um, an athlete under the rider all horses are athletes without the rider but they are obviously handicapped as soon as they have to carry us and um, I like to then focus on solutions for the rider first and see how they affect the horse And very often, if I can fix a weakness in the rider's body, I'm fixing the same weakness in the horse's body. Yeah. And um, there are only really kind of ma the main major problems are the rider's weight is too far forwards, too far backwards or too far to one side. And that is something that I can get riders to understand when they balance on a physio ball. And we didn't do a workshop today, but normally part of my clinic is uh, you ride, you're filmed, we watch the video, then you do exercises like balance on a physio ball. Or if you're with me the first time, I actually have you on your hands and knees being a horse and have somebody else experiment um, and you tell them how it feels for you. And riders are often quite shocked by that. So when they're the human horse and the rider sits on them with a hollow stiff back, you know, drilling their seat bones into the person's spine, they suddenly realize it's probably not 
a very nice thing to do and they learn how to correct that problem yeah so I have this sort of teaching philosophy that you do it you watch it on the video you can match the feelings with what you see you understand the theory of how to change it and then you go out a second time and ride again with that new knowledge and it is it totally accelerates the learning yeah people are able to really get the message much quicker than if they're just being told again and again the same time every week in the in the lesson do this do that and something that was part of my journey is that I was always incredibly nosy I wanted I was curious I wanted to know why do I have to have my heels down or why does I why do I have to give a half halt or you know whatever the thing was I wanted to know well what how does it affect the horse and I never found that information I didn't find it in classical riding education I only found out what 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 you do and how it affects the horse through this special training that I had with um, Mary Wanless, and she's written a lot of books on the subject um, that are quite heavy to read, they're quite intensive. Um, but when you have lessons um, with an instructor who can really find the weaknesses in your body and fix them, it, it, it's, it's a game changer, it's a life changer. And it, it, it turned around the relationship with this special horse that I'd always dreamed of. And then I got another horse, and everything that I had learned there worked for this horse and all, for all the horses that came after. And I thought, Jesus, why don't people know this? You know, I need to start to tell them. So when my career, you know, kind of fell apart, I, uh, I, I took this on. And it still gives me a huge thrill every day when I'm teaching, whether I'm teaching somebody to do a, a better rising trot or I'm teaching somebody who's a Grand Prix rider to do a better flying change or a pirouette how easy it is if they understand the logic of why, what and how to be able to do these things. And I I kind of developed a creative toolkit of little gadgets that I use on the rider and um, images that I use to explain things. Sponges. Sponges. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mrs. Spongebob I am. Yes, I put sponges everywhere, under the rider's feet, under the thighs, under the seat bones, under the arms. Um, it really did work, though. It yeah. was really interesting to see that. I mean, it, for sure, it has to do with body awareness. That, you know, when you have the sponges, the way you place them, you you have to hold the sponge, but also you, you feel them. You feel that body part better. You It gives you focus. And in this case, it was flyaway elbows, the elbows that go out like chicken wings. And I put two sponges under them and, and the rider's arms were so much quieter. She could do sitting trot without her hands bouncing. And then she, once she'd understood the muscles that she needed to use in order to keep the sponges there, she could do it without them. And so it was a breakthrough, you know, from having, you know, restless hands or... Um, you know, moving hands, she was able to coordinate her arm movements all of a sudden. And it does the same if you put them inside your your thighs, if you have knees that fall off the saddle, you know, legs that twist and the uh, toes go out like a penguin. You can put them under the thigh to rotate the thigh in, not to grip, but just to have a connection with the saddle. Yeah, which gives you more control of your leg and it gives you also then more control of the horse's shoulders. 
for example. Yeah. What I also um, noticed when you taught today was uh, the focus of uh, on the human pelvis. Oh yeah, totally. And for sure, everybody knows that you know a good seat is important, and pelvis the pelvis is part of that seat. But uh, still, it was very interesting to hear you talk about it. Yeah, it's the foundation of everything, really. It's the thing that your horse feels the most when you climb in the saddle. You give your horse a kind of a bum print. Everybody knows the thumbprint, yeah. So if you had to give your prints to the police for some crime or whatever, well, you have a kind of a bum print as well. As soon as you're in the saddle, that horse knows everything about your body, and in particular, the pelvis is the foundation on which you build the rest. Um, if you don't understand which parts of your pelvis should be um, in contact with the saddle, you can end up sitting much too much on the front of your pelvis or much too much on your back pockets. Yeah, and then if, for example, you're sitting on your back pockets, your legs will be forward in the so-called chair seat and your shoulders will probably be um, either round, um, collapsing, or they'll be too far back, at which point you're blocking the horse's hind legs and sending the pressure of the saddle in movement onto the horse's shoulders. Most people start in a chair seat um, when they when they have their first few lessons. And it's really about learning to know if you've got your seat bones vertically on the saddle, you are then able to stack up your Uh, your waistline, your ribs, your shoulders, your neck and your head to make a vertical stack like a hotel building, yeah? And you can have your legs then more easily underneath you so they rest at the widest part of the horse's body and then your leg signals work. If you're in the chair seat and if you've got your legs forward, your legs are more or less ineffective at giving leg signals. And you're probably pressing too much weight in the stirrups, so the stirrups run away, and you end up being behind the movement of the horse. And you're water skiing. Nobody would do it when they were right um, on a mountain. You know, if you were skiing down a mountain, unless you're a total beginner, if your skis go faster, you don't lean back. But I see many riders, especially if they're struggling to hold the speed of the horse's legs, trying to lean back. And then the horse is just hollowing his back, making a giraffe neck and running away. Yeah, and that was more or less the problem that I was in with my first horse. And once I had understood that I need to keep my legs under my body and my shoulders over my feet, um, everything got easier. The, the lazy horses go better and the speedy horses slow down. If we take 10 riders... That you meet in your clinics when you travel around the world. What do you see when you meet the riders for the first time? If you take 10 average riders? Um, I'd say probably on average 20%, so two of those 10 will be making a good job uh, of what they're doing most of the time, unless the horse is particularly challenging. Yeah, um, two of those riders will be too stiff, especially in the hips. Okay, it's... A kind of a problem with the modern world we sit around too much yeah sitting in front of computers sitting in cars etc so two of those will be too stiff and so they're not allowing the horse to move um, but a larger number I'd say 60% of riders are actually far too floppy and wobbly 
And they are disturbing their horse because they are actually too passive and too relaxed. And they need to support their bodies with more positive tension in their core and perhaps certain other muscles in order to stop the legs and arms, you know, um, disturbing the horse. Yeah, so I would say most uh, riders um, are not in control of their own movements. They're letting the horse move them. And so I try to say, imagine that the horse was a physio ball that you're sitting on and you decide how the ball rolls. You decide which direction the ball rolls into. And you also, if you're bouncing on the ball in a kind of a sitting trot way, you decide the height of the bounces and the speed of those bounces. But what I see a lot is when people are asked to do a sitting trot, for example, they just let the horse bounce them and they're not able to control their own movements. So I'm trying to teach uh, riders to tone up their, uh, their bodies, certain parts of their bodies, so that the hips can be free. The hips can only let go, or the, for example, the gripping with the legs only stops when people actually learn to engage their core muscles in order to have control of what's happening. Yeah, and not be bounced off the saddle or be bounced backwards or forwards. In a downward transition, people fall forwards. In upwards transitions, people fall backwards. Yeah, and once you learn which muscles can prevent that from happening, um, you don't do that anymore, and therefore your horse is a happier horse. This also brings to mind something else you said uh, during the clinic today, and that had to do with the horse moving freely forwards. Mm. Because you didn't think that was all that good idea necessarily. Not necessarily, no. Um, some horses are out of balance and they're running away with their front legs. And the rider mistakenly thinks that the horse is keen, eager, willing, cooperative. But they're just out of balance and, and running away. If that horse was 20% too fast in the walk, most people don't notice it. If the horse was 20% too fast in canter they would be panicking and doing something about it but very often it starts in the walk that the horse is um, pulling itself along with its front legs the hind legs can't catch up the horse's back is like a hammock and the horse's neck is like a giraffe and the riders don't know how to change it and the first thing you need to do is slow down. You need to slow down and get the horse to close the distance between the back legs and the front legs. Yeah, so you're not going to pull on the reins by doing this. You're going to control the movement of your hips. You, you control the movement of your seat bones on the saddle and you quietly ask the horse to um, walk in a slower speed and you'll find that Nearly always the horse will be so grateful that you are telling it not to run away that it will drop the neck, connect to the reins, lift the back, and you get kind of the whole parcel of the horse functioning again. Um, people also mistake impulsion with speed. So if the instructor says, ride your horse more forwards, they're just kicking like crazy. And the horse is getting faster and more and more out of balance. So if you can come back to a, a slower level of power, 
um, you can find your place on the saddle. You can plug in your seat bones. You can get more of a framework around the horse. The horse then feels secure in that framework and will relax. Having done that, once you've got established the balance, you might need to get a little bit more coiled spring energy, which is what impulsion is, whereas speed is just hurrying. Speed is just, you know, hectic and fast. Coiled spring energy is when the horse gets more lift and more bounce within the movements. And in trot, for example, spends more time with its legs off the ground than the legs on the ground. And in canter, the canter has more jump. It's not ba-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-dum. It's more ba-da-dum, jump, ba-da-dum, jump, ba-da-dum, jump. Yeah, but you can only do that once you've connected the horse's hind legs to the front legs and you're in control of what, what's in the middle. <laughs> but if the front legs are running away and the hind legs are getting left behind, yeah, it, you have an uncomfortable ride and your horse is, you know, is stressed. And so I don't think that freely forward is necessarily the answer. I think you need to bring your horse and yourself into balance. And then you add tiny amounts of power. So you would start then to maybe ask for 2% more trot and then another 2% and see if you stay together. Yeah. Um, rather than kick for go and hope for the best. Which is quite common, I think. <laughs> <laughs> But you, you, I think I see this a lot in competition and also with hobby horses that that um, you allow the horse just to run away and that we are not in place and you know what do you call it integrated in our bodies at all. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of riders are passengers, but they haven't realised that. Um, some people are speed junkies. So especially show jumpers and eventers, they love to go fast. You know, that's what thrills them. And it's okay as long as you are taking the horse for a ride, not the horse is taking you for a ride. Yeah, and that you can slow down whenever you need to. You can stop when you need to without needing, you know, um, five minutes in order to do that. Yeah, you you need to within every movement that you're doing so if you're a trot ideally you have the horse so well on your signals that you can canter at a moment's notice but you could also walk and maybe even you could halt yeah so you don't need any kind of time delay to do anything when you become a passenger um, the horse is taking over and the horses are then you know usually running ahead of the rider So then the rider doesn't really have a seat and all the rider has in order to slow down is the reins. Yeah, and then things get ugly and it's unnecessarily ugly because if you can learn how to be a friendly leader with your horse, horses are actually really happy with that. They want to know what, they, what, you, what you expect of them. They don't want to take control and they don't really want to run away. No horse wants to be in flight mode. But that's what happens when things get out of control. And so the rider must not give up control. But you you need to be able to find a way where you are signaling through your body 80% and your hands and legs only 20%. Yeah, most people are doing the 80-20 the wrong way around. <laughs> so that's why I focus a lot on the pelvis and the, the torso. Also because if you've got wobbly legs or wobbly hands, they're usually hanging off a wobbly body. If you've got stiff hands and stiff legs, they're hanging off a stiff body. So if we can get the middle of you right, 
all those other problems go away. Yeah. A lot of standard instructors who haven't had training in biomechanics, they're just correcting feet, hands and heads. Yeah. Keep your head up, keep your hands still, use your legs and ignoring all the important parts in between. And I do it the other way around. So I concentrate on the, on the center of the rider and then work my way out. So sometimes people have watched lessons and they said, my God, the rider had terrible hands. Why weren't you correcting it? I said, because she has no control over the hands because she has no control over her general balance yet. And if you fix the balance, she doesn't need to hang on the reins. Do you see? But most other people would just be complaining about that rider's hands, but that's only the symptom, that's not the cause. This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting really hung up on it. <laughs> but it is. So um, if I were to listen to this and I thought, Jesus, am I a wobbly rider and I'm not aware of it, which is can sometimes be the case, um, what would be a good way to start to kind of improve myself if you're not around? You know, what, mm. what are the first steps I can do to to um, analyze my own seat and find out where, where am I at with this horse? Um, well, I suppose now that we have cameras, we all have cameras and mobile phones, you could um, film yourself riding and then watch it back in slow motion like I do when I do my video analysis. And then you'd probably be able to see the parts of your body that were too stiff and the parts that were moving too much. If it's moving too much, what you could do, for example, if you've got a, a bit of a, what I call a jelly belly, <laughs> a bit of a belly dance going on, you can strap yourself into um, a back support, a wide elastic belt that you put around your body. And it just kind of holds you um, so you get a sense of how to be still. But more importantly, you can push your muscles into the belt. So like when you cough, if you <clears throat> you're actually engaging your core muscles and your muscles get bigger and they push into the belt. The belt gives you feedback. Um, am I doing it or am I not doing it? Whereas if you are riding along without anything close to your skin, it's much harder to know. Am I doing it? What you can do if you don't have any gadgets available is you can put the hand on your on your tummy and cough and notice the muscles jump out into your hand and then try to keep a permanent pressure there. And your hand, because it has so many um, sensitive nerves, will tell your brain, yes, I am doing it or oops, I've lost it. Yeah, so that's another way you could do it. I also encourage the rider to put the hand down on the top of the leg near the hip joint and notice, is that moving or is that stuck? Yeah, so your hands can tell you a lot about what's going on in your body, even if you don't have somebody to help you on the ground. Um, and then you can watch the video back and see how things have changed as you try to unstick your hips but prevent the jelly belly. Yeah. <laughs> If I realize that I'm really, really stiff, yeah. what would be your first advice then? Um, it depends where the stiffness is. I guess, you know, in an ideal world, if we all had enough time and money, we would be able to go to yoga lessons to stretch the bits that are too stuck and do Pilates lessons for the bits that aren't 
strong enough and that's what good top riders do I mean they might be riding 10 or 12 horses a day but they're also going to the fitness studio or to a personal trainer five times a week riding is not a strength sport as such but it requires a lot of body coordination so dancing for example is a very good complementary sport for riders because that kind of gets the joints working yeah, um, tramp, jumping on a trampoline would do the same. All the sports where you need to balance, like skiing, for example, are also good for riders because you have to be in control of your having your centre of gravity over your feet, which is what you also want when you're riding. But you're also dealing with difficult conditions. You know, the snow that is too icy or the snow that is too soft which is kind of like when the horse is too speedy or the horse is too slow. Yeah, so things like that will help. First of all, you need to also take time every time you ride to focus on your body. So I always say the first 10 minutes of the ride belong to the rider. You should be really going through your body internally and checking where are all my body parts and are they where I want them to be. If you've got on the saddle from the left-hand side and you're, you've, you've put your pelvis too much to the left by doing that, you could otherwise ride maybe the whole one hour not realising that you are not in the centre of the horse. So when you get on, you have to check the equipment. Is my saddle still in the middle or has it slipped? Is my girth tight enough? Do I have my seat bones the same distance from the horse's spine? Am I in the middle of the saddle from front to back? That sounds so elementary, but I can tell you that all the time with new clients, I'm saying you've put yourself too far back or you've put yourself too far forward or you're sitting three centimetres too far left or four centimetres too far right and they haven't felt it. So if you can get yourself really clear on I must have my nose over my chin, over my zip, over the middle of the horse where the mane starts to grow. And if Harry Potter took my horse away in a magic trick, I could land safely on my feet standing up. You've got 80% of what you need to be a good rider. The other 20% is how do you give signals? But you're not disturbing your horse's balance. But if you're in the chair seat, you're actively blocking the hind legs, passively also blocking the front legs. If you're leaning forward, you're actively blocking the front legs, but also by the backward pointing seat bones, telling the horse to, to go away with his hind legs, just as two examples. And wondering why the horse is too speedy or too slow or doesn't want to cooperate, doesn't want to listen. Yeah, so when you fix these basic fundamental um, body, body balance um, problems, you'll find that all the horses are much more willing, yeah, and the crazy ones become less crazy and the lazy ones become less lazy. Because I think you said that uh, if the horse does not comply or is not willing, either it doesn't understand what you want mm. or yes. he's in pain. Yes, yes. You're not being clear. You're not communicating clear signals. I see it very often, for example, with a rider who wants the horse to go quicker. They bump with the, the legs, but they also bump with their body on the saddle. Yeah. Or some people squeeze with the legs. The knees then come up. And at that moment, there's a lot of weight traveling backwards through your bottom. Okay, so as your knees come up, you sit heavier on the saddle. 
and they're giving conflicting signals. So the poor horse is getting a, sl a slow down signal because of the weight or the bumping of the of the rider's upper body, but the legs are saying go. And so then the horses get confused and, you know, they might do things that we think are naughty, but basically are basically just cries for help. You know, what are you trying to tell me? You know, I don't know what to do. So therefore I'll either protest and stand still and refuse to go forwards or I'll give a little buck or I'll shoot forward, uh, try to get to the door of the arena to get away. You know, all these things that are called disobedience are actually because the horse is confused. And then we have all the, that's compounded by the problems of saddles not fitting correctly or bridles not fitting correctly, um, where the horse is actually in a lot of pain, not only perhaps because of the equipment, but sometimes it is just that the saddle is pressing very much on the horse's um, shoulders or too much in the kidney area and the rider put bumping for example in sitting trots or falling forwards falling backwards you know out of balance and balancing on the reins which causes a lot of discomfort in the horse's mouth yeah so if, if you can get to where you are still enough that you move with the horse but you don't move too much yeah then again you can help the horse to be more comfortable and if you can get regular checks on your equipment and some regular therapy for your horse, you, your horse will be even happier to, to carry you around. But if we are going to ride our horses, we have a duty to take care of our own problems. And we're all crooked. You know, we're all one-sided. And... Um, we're all a bit handicapped in that. <laughs> so, you know, I do think that this body work for riders is extremely important because we're also straightening ourselves. I get many thank you letters from people who've had terrible, terrible problems with their backs and or with their necks or with their knees. And they say, thank heavens I, I came to you because I'm not just now a better rider, but I'm also a much healthier human being. So mindfulness and body awareness basically so yeah if i if i sort out my head and my body this is for sure something i experienced <laughs> myself then you know it's so much easier to be my horse yes i think it's the holy trinity of being in good physical shape and understanding your body um being in good emotional shape so um not getting angry frustrated you know, all those little negative emotions, if you can ride with a really positive mindset, that helps a lot. And then also the mental processing. So I give my riders a checklist of things they need to take care of. Little keywords, yeah, sometimes quite funny keywords, like bed springs today, you know, which wouldn't mean anything to anybody else. But that rider knows what I mean when I say, don't forget your bed springs, don't forget your sponges, things like that. And so I can just do bed springs, sponges, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm much quicker at getting through my body processing to not let things go wrong. So that when I'm controlling all those body parts that I couldn't control yesterday, um, you suddenly get a much bit better big picture. And again, the horse is more comfortable, you know, if I'm... If I forget my checklist, if I'm too focused on 
I don't know, daydreaming because I'm riding in the forest. Oh, look at the birds, look at the trees. Maybe I'll go back to my old habits. And then those old habits are destroying my balance, destroying my communication, destroying the relationship with my horse. So I like to also work on the mental side of things to make sure that we can repeat the new habits and make them automatic. And that takes, you know, takes some time. So you have to do 20 to 40 repetitions to build a good or to have actually an idea of the pattern. 300 to 400 repetitions will make something work reliably. And then you need to do a few thousand repetitions before you can you can do it automatically without thinking about it. Remind me how many repetitions a horse will need. Uh, I think it's between five and eight. So, so they a bit learn, sharper, though. They're a bit sharper than we are. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. But this is the problem. If you allow your horse to run to the exit of the arena five times, yeah, the next time you ride around the arena, he will think that's the deal, you know, and this is where I go to the door. Yeah. If you manage to get your horse past the door and onto the circle that you wanted to ride, and you can do that for five or six times correctly, you have deleted the old behavior and you've got the new behavior. But if your right leg has been bumping the horse uncontrollably for the last five years, it's not going to be fixable in one day. You know, you need to do a lot more repetitions in order to stop that leg from bumping the horse when you don't want to, yeah? And um, it doesn't work without putting in that practice, yeah? So, yeah, it's it takes time, but it's worth it, yeah? And your horses will thank you for it. I want to uh, end this uh, talk with my signature question, uh, Elaine. And that is, what have you learned on your journey with the horses that you think it's important that everybody dealing with horses should know? Um, be prepared for change. Um, be prepared to experiment um, with your body within reason. Um, try some things that you might never have tried before um, in order to learn what works and what doesn't work. I think if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. Yeah, you can't just sit there riding in the old, let's say, less correct way and expect your horse to miraculously get better. You need to change yourself to change the horse. And I think you are working on your own body skills, which is quite a journey through your body, um, in order to improve the relationship with your horse and for the good of the horse. Yeah, and I don't regret that my first horse was difficult because if I hadn't gone through that I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now I think if I'd had an easy horse I would never have you know I would have thought well what's the big deal you know I can sit here I can do walk trot canter do a bit of jumping so what and I wouldn't have realized what um what deficiencies I had yeah so through this journey I've realized that I can cope with much more difficult horses and I can help people with so-called difficult horses because they're not being difficult they're just you know confused out of balance and unable to do the job that you wish them to do you can also consider them to be blessings yeah I think it is a blessing in disguise yeah
Thank you ever so much for this talk, Elaine. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You have just heard episode 32 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Blom, designer of the podcast Visual Profile, Ove Hals. I want to thank my sound designer, Stig Holte, my guest, Elaine Butler. And last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.